And she makes up her mind right there on the spot, I'm going to run away. I have to run away because if I don't run away, my father's going to kill me. And at the moment that she makes up this decision, the phone rings. And there's a woman she's never met on the other end of the phone. And she's right outside with a taxi. And she says, come out. Come out now. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to take you away. And so she goes outside and there's a woman she's never met. And she says, get in the taxi. She literally pushed her into the taxi and they left. And the only thing that Miriam brought with her was her passport and a picture of the family. I'm Joel Moss, and this is the Native Missions Podcast. This is truly a refuge, and you can see it on the children's faces. The most receptive people for the gospel would have been those people who were outcast. Actually, shining a light on millions of people who have no Welcome to the Native Missions Podcast. I am your host, Joel Moss. On this episode, I sat down with Eric Vess, who's the Director of International Communication here at Advancing Native Missions. He was excited to share the fascinating story of a husband and wife ministry team reaching their Muslim neighbors in Central Asia. Well, Eric, it's good to have you back in the A&M studios. Thank you. We're here today to talk about your recent trip to Turkey. So can you start off by giving us a bit of a background on what led up to you going on this trip? Well, the main thing that led up to going on this trip to Turkey is uh, is our desire in the marketing department uh, to have more interviews with our newest partners. Our newest par- international partners are from Central Asia, and we have not met all of them. And uh, they were, many of them, not all of them, were coming to Turkey for a gathering of other believers from Central Asia for encouragement and, and just to get to know each other better. So P.R. Misra, uh, president of International, and myself representing marketing, we went to this gathering to do interviews with uh, several of our, our newest partners. So my understanding is that all of these partners were coming to Turkey from what we here at A&M call Central Asia. Can you paint a picture of where that is and why um, those church leaders from that area are gathered in Turkey? First thing to understand about Central Asia is that these were the former Soviet republics back during the Soviet era. Uh, Countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan— Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan were all Soviet bloc uh, satellites, and uh, they, but they share something in common. Uh, they share a common uh, ethnicity, most of them do, uh, in that they're related to their big brother in Turkey, their Turkic peoples, except for Tajikistan, where they're related more to Persians or to folks from Iran. And these, uh, it's interesting that during the conference. The common language of all of these folks that came to the conference was Russian. The conference was conducted in Russian with translation into Turkish and translation into English. So I'm glad they translated into English. And my little tiny bit of Russian that I know I was able to use with some of these folks. But it was interesting to me because of their, their long history with the Soviet Union, uh, the only language they had in common was Russian. Well... You've touched on uh, at least partial answer to the next question. When you look at the culture of this area, Eric, what aspects of the culture do you see impacting 
how the gospel is shared? Well, first of all, all of these countries are predominantly Muslim. Uh, that's part of their reemergence as independent nations after the fall of the Soviet Union was a reemergence of their of their Muslim identity. Most of them are what we call uh, folk Muslims in that they're not uh, strongly orthodox, but it's part of their national identity. It's part of their ethnic identity. Well, Eric, I know you did uh, sit down and talk with a couple of partners that we have in that region. Can you talk and give us a little more detail about one of them? Right. I, I think I was uh, most impressed with a couple from one of the Central Asian countries. Uh, the man has a beekeeping business, which he uses to support himself. But what really fascinated me about uh, this particular couple was the woman's testimony. I, I could call her Miriam, for instance. Uh, that's not her real name. But the fact is, uh, I think that going all the way to Turkey was worth it if I'd only sat down with this one couple because their story was so fascinating, how God worked in their lives to bring them to Christ in the first place. They're both from very different backgrounds. He is from a very religious family, but his mother was Russian Orthodox. His father was a very religious man, kind of related to East German Baptists, if you can imagine that. And uh, she, on the other hand, came out of a Muslim family. And somehow they met each other, and after they became Christians and got married, but they, their, their testimonies are just amazing what God has done in their lives. Miriam, uh, first of all, she learned English from an American English teacher in her country. So the, the first fascinating thing about her is that her English sounded like she learned it from an American and not from a European. And that was very obvious in the way that she phrased things, even her accent in English. But she grew up in a, a very uh, traditional Muslim family. Her father had been in the uh, Russian-Soviet uh, military. He'd served in Afghanistan. Uh, he'd been in combat. He was a very tough guy. And uh, when Miriam came to faith in Christ through this English teacher, this American English teacher. Uh, she kept it secret for months. And finally, she came home one day, and her father proudly announced to her, you're engaged, and you're going to be married a month from now. He's a really fine guy, and you'll meet him later. And she just went, no, I'm not marrying a Muslim. And they were shocked. And they said, why? And I said, because, because I, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian now, and I, I'm not going to marry a Muslim. And they, it just uh, shocked them so much. The father got very violent. He started hitting her. He struck her on the face. Uh, he insulted her. Uh, and finally, he, he took her by the arm and led her out to the cemetery near their house and said, I'm going to put you in the ground here unless you choose. You choose family over Jesus. In fact, he said, it's not even a choice for Islam. I'm asking you to choose your family or choose Jesus. And she said, well, I have to choose Jesus. And, he, and at that, that moment, when she thought, oh, my goodness, he's going to kill me right here, the grandfather in the family, because the extended family lives together, the grandfather comes up to them and says, it's Ramadan. You can't kill anybody during Ramadan. It's a sin. And it's two days left before Eid al-Fitr, the, the feast at the end of Ramadan. And so you have to wait for two days before you do anything. And so <laughs> if you could just imagine if you were Miriam and all of a sudden you thought you were going to die right then 
and then you find out it's going to be two days before it happens. What are you thinking over that period of time? And she just... It, it just it drove her crazy. She actually thought, my goodness, I might com- reconvert to Islam. I don't want to do that. I want to stay loyal to Jesus. Uh, but at the end of Ramadan, there's always a big festival. There's always a big food, a big feast. And one of the things the family does in this particular country is they go out to the graveyard to honor their dead relatives. So the whole family is out on the graveyard, and she's at home with like one or two women And she makes up her mind right there on the spot, I'm going to run away. I have to run away because if I don't run away, my father's going to kill me. And at the moment that she makes up this decision, the phone rings. And there's a woman she's never met on the other end of the phone. And she's right outside with a taxi. And she says, come out. Come out now. And I'm I'm going to hide you. I'm going to take you away. And so she goes outside and there's a woman she's never met. And... She says, get in the taxi. She literally pushed her into the taxi, and they left. And the only thing that Miriam brought with her was her passport and a picture of the family. And so this woman put her in hiding. She had found out. You probably asked the question, how did she know this? Somehow the international church in that community had heard about her situation, and it told several people, and this woman went to rescue her, literally rescue her. And she took her to another village put her in an apartment, fed her, and it turns out this other woman worked for the United Nations, and she was a Christian. She was a, a native of that particular country. She wasn't a foreigner. And she, uh, she found an apartment for Miriam, and she put her up there for three months. And during that time, there was some intense discipleship going on. Uh, there was a lot of prayer going on. And during this time, Miriam is trying to decide, you know, what am I going to do next? And so it, it's just, it, when I listen to this testimony, I'm thinking, this is a book. This is, well, this is a movie. This could be a movie. This, this woman's story is so dramatic. This happened 20 years ago, by the way. And yet she, she spends that time in that apartment. And at some point, she decides to go back to her family and confront her family about this because she finds out that her father is so grieved at her disappearance that he started drinking heavily and he's, he's cursing. He's not only cursing Christianity, he's not only cursing everybody he knows, he's cursing Islam. And he's saying, he's, he actually prayed and said, God, if you're real, bring my daughter back to me. And so uh, she's been in some contact with her mother. So he, she goes back, goes back to the house. And the family's just overjoyed to see her because they didn't know whether she was alive or not. So she comes in the house, and her father's not there, and her father refuses to come back for two days. But finally, he comes back, and he's in full uniform. And one little note I left out is he had a lot of contacts with the KGB, with the, with the Soviet security, and he had enlisted them to find her, and they couldn't find her during all this time. So finally, he finds out that she's come back, and he comes back in full uniform, and he, he continues to say, you know, are, are you— are you still following this Jesus? And she said, yes, I am. But I'll tell you this, Father, you know, I used to hate you. I hated you. But now, because of Jesus, I love you. And he says, stop preaching at me. Stop preaching at me. And yet, somehow in all of this, his heart gets softened toward his daughter, and there is a a partial reconciliation that takes place. And finally, he comes to the point of saying, okay, 
If you're going to be a believer in Jesus, you can be a believer in Jesus. But you can't go to any church. You can't do any of this in public. It has to be private. You can privately believe in Jesus. But basically what he was saying is don't embarrass the family by this thing. But don't ever leave me again. Don't ever leave me again because, you know, I love you and I missed you. And so his real feelings toward his daughter come out and she says, well, Dad, I thought you were going to kill me. And he said, I would never have done that. I was just trying to scare you into giving this up, giving up this faith in Jesus. And so uh, through all this whole process, after she meets her husband later on, uh, the husband is accepted by the family. Not a single member of her family has come to faith in Jesus, but they have accepted the fact uh, over the last 20 years and through their marriage, of course, too, that uh, this is who this Miriam is. This is what animates her life. This is what's real in her life. And so they've, uh, they've come to a point of accepting the fact that that's where she is and who she is. But not one of them, as far as she knows, has come to faith in Jesus. Wow. wow. Is that a movie or not? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Is there a story you can relate, Eric, about how these ministries have impacted the society around them and possibly ways that the gospel has made inroads in the places where they're at? Yeah, well, two things come to mind. One is something that was shared with us in the interview that we did with this couple. And that is, as uh, the husband increases his beekeeping business, his honey production business, he's able to share this skill with other men who, because of COVID and everything else, have been out of work. They haven't had any work. And so he's actually been able to train people how to make money in producing honey from bees and all of these men are Muslims. And so what he's done is th this opportunity of sharing this, this business opportunity with them becomes a foundation for sharing the gospel with them as well. And that's one thing. The second thing has just come about since the fall of Kabul in Afghanistan. One of the countries uh, where many of these refugees are going is the country where this couple lives, and they're very close by. And so the husband is being employed right now to help build a refugee camp in his country for Afghan refugees. And most of these are people who were in the Afghan military working closely with the United States. So they were evacuated from Afghanistan. There's some of the people. Uh, refugees have gone in every direction, including here in the state of Virginia and the United States and all of that. But there are many of them that have been evacuated to countries in the region. And some of those countries are right in Central Asia because they surround Afghanistan, all right? Uh, and so he's actually in the process right now of working to help build a refugee camp for uh, Afghan refugees who've been evacuated from Afghanistan. And because he's involved in that process, uh, he believes that his church, his, his house church, the house church that he pastors, will be able to actually minister to these Afghan refugees and actually communicate the gospel to them at some point during the process. And I, uh, to me, you know, when we look at the news, we think of this, this horrible disaster that happened in Afghanistan. But here is one of the ways in which God is redeeming situations like that, and that is to send refugees to countries where they are uh, they, they're able to be ministered to by believers. And that is an, and, and in these countries where the percentage of Christians is well less than a half a percent, okay, the fact that Afghan refugees would end up 
in a refugee camp built by a Christian is, is nothing less than just a miracle of God as, as an ability to impact people from Afghanistan. It's very hard inside Afghanistan, though there are ministries that work there, and there are ministries that are still working inside Afghanistan. Nevertheless, these have been evacuated, and this man and other people from his church are going to have an opportunity to interface with them and develop relationships with them. So, Eric, um, we focus in on what maybe sometimes is narrowly called ministry, when really our lives are a ministry to God and then to others. So can you paint a broader picture of what are some of the other activities and things that uh, make up the lives of these partners? Well, one of the things that impressed me in the conversation that I had with Miriam and her husband was the fact that even though they're involved in full-time ministry as a house church in their country, they're both working, and he's working in beekeeping, earning money. He's also working in construction, and his, his specific specialty is plumbing, and he was a plumber. So you have to understand that these people are not just sitting around doing what we think of is what a pastor does, but they're, they're working jobs to earn money to live on, and they want it that way. When we asked them, how could you expand your ministry of your local church, they said, we need to find the right person, hopefully within our own family circle, that can help expand the ministry work. And we, we asked, so what, what would it take to support someone like that? And they, and they gave us a number. But they said, that's not how we want to do it. We want to employ them. We want them to have a job that pays the bills for them and their family, and, and that they're committed to doing this ministry work. And so this, this um, tent-making, as we, we call it you know, in the evangelical church, we call it tent-making after the Apostle Paul, is, is kind of the primary way in which many of these partners think about how ministry is to be done. Ministry, and it's not that you separate your life into your job and your ministry kind of the way we do, but that they're all intertwined. Just as I was explaining that if you employ Muslims in your beekeeping business, then part of your ministry is sharing with them why you're doing that. Why are you helping them? Why are you giving them a skill so they can live through COVID and through these situations in their own countries? And the answer to that is because God loves you because Jesus loves us and because we want to share that with you. And we don't want a wall between you and me. And so they said, we don't want church buildings. We have house fellowships because we don't want a wall between us and our Muslim neighbors. And so the business operates that way. The family relationships operate that way because anybody with an extended family is going to have plenty of Muslims in their extended family. And they all know what they do, and they still have meals together. They still fellowship together because they're extended families. And I think that's something that seems unusual to us, but is completely normal to most people in the world, and especially in this part of the world, because that's how their culture operates. It operates on this extended family basis. Wow. We're going to get back to the rest of our interview with Eric Vess in just a moment. But first, here's a brief message on how you can get involved in the work of Advancing Native Missions. Since 1992, Advancing Native Missions has served as a bridge, a bridge from you to the nations. We help Christians and churches engage in global outreach that transforms lives and communities in the name of Jesus. God has given us a particular vision 
Rather than sending foreign missionaries abroad, we partner with native missionaries across the globe. Our native partners know the language, customs, and culture of the people they serve, because they are the people. Their ministries are well-vetted, gospel-centered, and spiritually fruitful, and they purposefully focus their work on places without a thriving local church. Donations to A&M equip these faithful believers to provide help and hope in the name of Jesus. It propels them as they share the gospel, plant churches, and care for the poor in the world's unreached, marginalized, and forgotten communities. So cross that bridge to the nations. Give today at AdvancingNativeMissions.com. So what excites you about meeting people from this part of the world, what you see God doing in this part of the world, what... uh, what gets you excited? It really excites me to get to know some of our partners from Central Asia. Number one, because this is a new region for us. A regional director for that part of the world, Warren, brings to us this wealth of experience in a part of the world where we have not had much experience as advancing Native missions. And you have these fascinating people who God loves and who are part of countries, members and citizens of countries that are almost entirely unreached with the gospel. So anything that's going on through the church, through Christians in these countries, is reaching unreached people because everyone in these countries are unreached. It's, uh, I, I, it's very difficult to think in those terms, but it really is. Uh, again, the, about the, the biggest percentage of Christians in any one of these countries might be 0.3%. You know, that's not many Christians. And yet... These folks are being reached, and some of them have favor with people in authority. Some of them are, as we said, are, are helping to build refugee camps for Afghan refugees. It's just, it's amazing. And I wanted to be there. I wanted to experience that. And uh, just quite from a personal point of view, I think uh, Turkey is not in Central Asia, but ethnically it's related to all the Turkey peoples. Uh, but Turkey itself is one of my favorite places to visit. It's just a fascinating country. And just to be there in that context and to meet these folks who didn't have to fly very far to get there. I mean, most everyone that attended the conference from Central Asia had a less than two-hour flight to get there. Okay, so it's very close. And just to hear those stories and to meet these people in person just really, really excited me. Plus, I like to tell stories. So we did the interview with Miriam and her husband. And I just finished re- listening to that recording. It was about an hour and 15 minutes long. And I'm going to be writing a blog post about it and about Miriam and about her, her testimony. But you just, when you hear a story like hers, you realize, my goodness, God is still doing these amazing things in people's lives around the world. And I love to be able to hear those stories. I love to share those stories. I love to write about those stories. And quite on a very personal basis. Uh, This trip was the first trip in over 18 months for me outside the country. I had not been able to travel anywhere because of COVID. And when I had the opportunity to go, I just jumped at it because, I mean, I love to go to Turkey. Plus, I wanted to meet these folks. And to me, one of the most exciting parts of this job at Advancing Native Missions is the interface with people from different cultures and to hear their stories and to meet them and to get to know them as people. So as we start kind of winding down, what would you say to somebody who is wondering why, um, why supporting Native missions or indigenous ministry workers is, uh, is valuable? Well, 
I think supporting indigenous or native missions is is valuable because it seems that in this time and uh, this this period of time, God is especially using native missionaries to reach their own countries. And every time I, do, I meet someone or do an interview with someone from one of these countries and they talk about the unreached people groups that they're working with, I think, you know, I could never do that. I mean, uh, even... Even when you, you, you look back at the long history of American uh, foreign missions and you think about the sacrifices that men and women made and, and the great sacrifices that they made that are extremely, by the way, appreciated by people around the world. Uh, but I think I could never, ever have the impact on the culture of Miriam and her husband that they can. I could never do that. They are uniquely tied to that. It's interesting. One of them is one ethnicity and, and the other is of another ethnicity. Uh, and yet they come together in marriage. They come together in ministry. And they have these amazing stories of how God is using them to reach unreached peoples uh, within their own countries. And that, to me, is is the story of modern missions, of today's modern missions, is the story, in my opinion, of native missionaries. Wow. That was inspiring to hear how God is transforming lives in Central Asia, and I was so glad that Eric could share the stories of Miriam and her husband with all of us. I'm going to ask God that he grant all of us a deeper love for our families, our co-workers, and our neighbors, and the grace to show them the love of Christ in practical ways. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of the Native Missions Podcast. The Native Missions Podcast is a production of Advancing Native Missions. For more information on AM, visit advancingnativemissions.com.